1: In this week's interview on new books in intellectual history, we talk about sex. Well, actually, we talk about the talk about sex. Since Michel Foucault's work, History of Sexuality, this has been a central concern of cultural and intellectual historians. Foucault linked a number of 19th century phenomena, such as the growth of sexology as a discipline and the pathologization of homosexuality, to the emergence of biopolitical strategies of subject formation, and population management. Picking up on Foucault's work, some historians of modern Germany have read the talk about sex and reproduction in the Kaiserreich as a foundational stage in a eugenic logic that would ultimately lead to national socialism and its racial state. In his book, Sex, Freedom and Power in Imperial Germany, Edward Ross Dickinson challenges this view he likens sex talk to a barroom brawl that starts at one table and spreads across a crowded room. Sex emerged as a field of contestation involving Christian moralists, sex reformers, and sexologists, each tied to different social and political interests. In this interview, we discussed the different anthropologies that undergirded their respective positions. Christian and some Jewish morality activists argued that sex had to be overcome through the moral spirit, while sex reformers and sexologists understood sex in a monist vein as a natural drive and the engine of creative production and of human biological and social evolution. I very much enjoyed the following conversation with Edward Ross Dickinson and hope you do as well. Hello, this is Todd Weir, your host of New Books in Intellectual History. Welcome back to another show. Today it's my pleasure to be speaking to Edward Ross Dickinson, who has recently published a book, Sex, Freedom, and Power in Imperial Germany, 1880-1914. to uh, Ed is a professor of history at the University of California, Davis, and uh, he's a, a prolific author of uh, very interesting essays and articles that he's been publishing over the last decade, on the subject related to this book and so this this book is i think a really a culmination of of over a decade of of work and i'll just say that it's a very uh, impressive book and i particularly like the way in which he has incorporated uh literally hundreds of voices that he's he's pulled out of of uh, texts both well-known and obscure and um and i think he he manages to to uh Um, overcome a certain problem that I always warn my students about when they write essays. And that is, I say, uh, you know, you have to be careful when you use many, many quotations um, that you don't want to do what Nietzsche warned against um, in writing, which is Nietzsche said that there's always a danger in quotation that you could be uh, producing a piece of work in which the quotations are like uh, pieces of stained glass that are held together by the lead of your own prose, um, and I think you've really uh, uh, overcome this this uh, potential threat of using many quotations. And these, these quotations are really woven together very nicely. And so we have a very, very actually very straightforward, readable text and a clear argument. But nonetheless, which is saturated with voice out of this time period. So, so Ed, congratulations on a on a well written and uh, I think masterful book.
0: Thank you. That's extraordinarily flattering. <laughs>
1: Um, so we usually start these interviews by, by asking a, a question about your, uh, a bit of your biography, what brought you to this topic? Um, you know, what, uh, obviously the, the topic of, well, the book, I'll just say focuses, uh, rather primarily on the first of the three terms you bring, right? Sex, freedom mm-hmm. and power, but sex is really the center of this, of this, um, Of this book. Um, Mm -hmm. So, without being too racy, perhaps you could tell us how you arrived at the topic of sex ed.
0: So, I wrote a dissertation and first book on child welfare policy in Germany between 1870 and 1960. And that was uh, concerned primarily with the physical welfare of children and social welfare. But there were uh, many of the figures involved in that book we're also very interested in the moral welfare of children and when I got done with that I started investigating more um, sort of competing conceptions of uh, how to prepare children for a moral life as well as a productive um, and healthy life and got into this subject through that and followed various different avenues and debates related to that question um, and uh, gradually got more and more interested in sex and reproduction and the way in which that was related to people's conceptions of politics and, and morality and so forth. So it really grew directly out of that previous research project. The other thing was that I I became very interested in the ideological debates and in the sort of radical disjunctions and disconnections between the ways different groups of people looked at at morality Um And I think that appealed to me because I've lived in a number of different societies and um, was wrestling in my own life with um, the incommensurability of people's conceptions of the world and and the good life. So I lived in communist East Germany, and I lived in sort of kleptocratic capitalist Italy, and I lived in um, West Germany, and I lived in New Zealand, which was very much a social democracy when I got there, undergoing a neoliberal revolution. And um, I was very impressed by the um, by the ways in which uh, people can see the same social reality in absolutely radically opposed manner and that comes out I think very strongly in this book
1: you know I didn't even realize that you had lived in East Germany because I did as well as a student in Rostock is that right yeah. fantastic in where Where did you in live Ro-
0: Rostock oh you poor man oh it's lovely it was great really oh, was I spent a month in Rostock in winter and I just it was very tough
1: Ah. I liked it, but that's another story. All right. Uh, So let's get to the, uh, the sort of historiographical context uh, of this, of this work. Um, the, uh, I suppose the starting point for most, uh, historians of sexuality or of, or of sexology, uh, would have to be Michel Foucault of of recent, um, you know, people have worked on the subject in recent years. And, uh, you know, if you're familiar with with Foucault's work on the history of sexuality, of uh, it's been enormously productive for uh, scholars working in many fields. But really, the notion that um, uh, that discourse, talking about sexuality and institutions created around the management and the the investigation of sexuality, uh, had a key role in the creation of modern subjectivities, mm-hmm. and uh, and particularly the whole. Uh, field of gender history, obviously, has been inspired by this mm-hmm. um, paradigm that, that, he, that he created. But I suppose in, in German history, we have really a, a different set of questions that are thrust upon us by 20th century German history itself. And really, it's the question of uh, not just s- subjectivity of, of individuals, but rather the connection between the discourse of, of, of sex and biology and national socialism. Right. Mm-hmm. and um, and the the text there that is really crucial would have to be Detlef Poikert's um, essay on the genesis of the final solution from the history of science. Now, mm-hmm. I assume we're about the same generation more or less, but uh, if you were a graduate student in the 1990s studying German history, mm-hmm. uh, this, this text, I think, had an enormous impact, particularly on American students of German history, even more so than German students of German history. I think that's an interesting question of why it is that Poikert, who's a German, is probably more strongly received in the, in the United States than in uh, than in Germany itself. Right. Um, but I was I was wondering if you could open this up a bit for the readers. Uh, you know, perhaps something about Foucault, but but maybe Poikert. Um, what was his argument about the relationship of biology and National Socialism, and um, and then and then going on from there. In what ways does your book uh, revise uh, this particular view of the history of biology and sex?
0: Right. Wow. Well, I need to pause for a moment and drag this stuff out of my memory banks. Um, Both Foucault and particularly Poikert were absolutely central to my thinking at the beginning of the project, partly because Poikert wrote an extremely influential and extraordinarily impressive book about child welfare policy. Um, So I really started there. Of course, I read Foucault in graduate school, and um, I went to Berkeley in the late 80s, and Foucault was um, very influential there, specifically in that time, Um, but really began with with Poikert. The argument that Poikert makes in that essay, as I recall it, and you can probably correct me here, (laughs) is that... um, in the modern era, partly because of uh, the trend of secularization, people came to invest biology and particularly the the collective biological entity of the nation with the quasi-religious importance, um, and began to argue that uh, transcendence or life after death takes the real form of the ongoing life of the nation through the generations. Right. And that the idea therefore of, uh, improving the race or the national body came to have almost religious significance. Um, and that meant that, and and again, correct me if I'm conflating other things with Poikert's argument, but that meant that, um, Moral standards that had um, militated against treating people as objects or people as a means to an end were eroded by the sense that treating people's physical bodies as a means to the end of transcendence was actually the highest form of morality. Am I confusing things here? No, I think you're, think you're doing well. Okay. Sounds okay. just right to me. I feel like I'm back in my comprehensive exams here. Um, <laughs> um, and Quaker uh, did not argue that the logical outcome of this was national socialism and mass murder, but he did argue that this that was one possible outcome of this way of thinking about the body and this sort of investment of the national body with almost religious significance. Um, so uh and then the other thing that, that um Poikert argued was that there was a a kind of um um urgency or uh or a compulsive character to this kind of thinking because of course um the individual body does die and is imperfect, and um uh the project of achieving Sort of biological perfection is therefore always confronted with imperfection, right? That there's a um, there's an almost obsessional quality to the drive to perfect humanity in a biological sense, because our imperfections are constantly undermining that project, uh, and just the fact of death is of individual death is constantly undermining that project. Um, And I've argued elsewhere in a couple of uh, review essays that uh, while Poikert is careful to point out that this is not, again, the necessary – that national socialism is not the necessary outcome of this kind of thinking, um, just the salience of the problem of national socialism in German history and German historiography meant that that's really what he wrote about. And he didn't write about – the other possible outcomes of that kind of thinking. Um, and In a review essay I published I think in 2004 or 2006 or sometime back then, um, I argued that really sort of the democratic welfare state is also a possible outcome of that kind of thinking. The democratic welfare state is um, a biopolitical project. It's aimed at improving the health of the nation. Um, but it does so not through dictatorial and murderous policies, but through uh, policies of assistance that are founded on the conception of individual rights. Right? Uh, we achieve national health and efficiency and economic power and so forth by assuring that people have an actionable right to healthcare, to education, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so. I then, um, you know, obviously with this project, I had to um, engage with Foucault and I found kind of a little bit the same pattern there that Foucault um, was ultimately and al- almost in an unspoken fashion, very much concerned with fascism. Mm-hmm and specifically with National Socialism. Uh, in that book, National Socialism appears at the end of a long development that Foucault traces back to the mid-18th century, um, and not necessarily, again, not necessarily as a culmination or, or uh, um, um, the only possible outcome of that development, but as a, um, a possible one, a likely one. And um, I was struck by Um, the tendency to regard any form of talk about sexuality as a prologue to coercive intervention to regulate sexuality. Um, And um, what I found when I went to the sources was a much more contested, much more diverse, uh, much more open debate than that model suggests. So the book um, tries to reconstruct what Foucault in earlier essays referred to as the multiple teleologies and the multiple connections and the multiple um, lines of possibility that arise out of any discourse or any way of understanding the world. Um, and I really was actually ultimately much more influenced by the archaeology of knowledge and by some essays um, from the early 1970s of Foucault's than by the history of sexuality Um, in those earlier essays Foucault is much less structuralist in his approach to discourse and the way discourse operates in societies in social contexts so um, I, I I it's very difficult to say whether I'm a Foucauldian, but if I'm a Foucauldian, I'm a Foucauldian, a la the early Foucault of the archaeology of knowledge, and not of the history of sexuality.
1: Very good. The uh, you know, I, I guess the, the, the point being with the with the boycott, um that uh, that I took away from it, it had to do with <laughs> the the notion that there was a a logic inherent in a discourse that itself would propel dynamics and propel right. certain teleological. Uh, outcomes, yes, uh, and that it seemed that you were you were trying to replace these teleological notions of discourse with this, as you said, a contested terrain. And you like, use also uh, quite often the term field. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm of course a big fan of of Bourdieu, Pierre Bourdieu and his mm-hmm. you know his notions of of social fields in which uh, it's important to consider the relations between the, the various actors within the field. Um, as well as sort of the more internal, uh, you know, intrinsic intentions of the actors. Uh, so, so your book really sketches out a, a kind of field. You try to open up this field, and, and you identify actually uh, quite clearly, I think, uh, you know, three major actors in the field, and then and then sort of even within those three camps, if we want to call them camps, or maybe two camps, three camps, um, um, different. Uh, f- different fissures within those. Absolutely. So, do you want to do you want to describe a bit? And this is getting now into the the meat of the book. Um, you know, sex emerges as a a topic of discourse, of reform effort, of contention. Uh, you know, in your book, eighteen eighty is when you pick it up. Um, you know, how, how describe this field for us? Maybe give us some of the actors and, the, and mm-hmm. some of the key
0: developments. Mm-hmm. You know, um Bourdieu is very helpful in this respect, I think. And the other theorist that I found very useful was Nicholas Luhmann in the theory of complex systems. And what you've just described is absolutely what I try to do in this book, which is not to analyze the inherent logic in any given discourse or any given view of the world, but rather to analyze the dynamic that, rea- that uh, emerges from the rea- interactions between competing conceptions of sexuality. Right. And that's really what the book does, um, is to describe the emergence and, uh, articulation of this field of, uh, competing conceptions of sexuality and the dynamic that the interactions between them over time develops. So, um, You start in the 1880s with very small groups of activists from various camps, socialists, conservative Christians, um, and so forth. Uh, Very small groups of activists, many of them interested in uh, quite specific issues, whether it be the regulation of prostitution or marriage law or uh, the legal position of illegitimate children or censorship or what have you. those groups number in the high hundreds to low thousands. They begin to pursue particular legislative projects, uh, regulatory projects. They then start to bump up against each other. Um, and out of that bumping up against each other, that creates the dynamic that generates an expanding field of organizations and Discourse and so forth. So really you start with uh, liberal Christian women inspired by uh, Josephine Butler's campaign in Britain against the regulation of prostitution. And you begin to see um, uh, actually chapters, local German chapters of Josephine Butler's international organization in Germany. Um, that then sparks a response from conservative Christian men – Conservative, I should say, Protestant men who are uh, very concerned that liberal Protestant women will seize control of that issue. Um, they are also, uh, of course, extremely concerned by social democratic uh, thinking about sexuality and specifically by um, August Babel's Woman Under Socialism, which I think is published in 1878, early 1880s, I can't remember exactly. Um, so Christian, Protestant men respond to, to, to those perceived threats. Um, and, um, you sort of go from there. They rub up against, uh, liberal Protestants who organize their own interconfessional or liberal Protestant organizations. Um, radical women come into the picture in the 18, mid to late 1890s. Uh, the socialist women's trade unions. Become more involved in the same period, 18, mid 1890s, late 1890s. By the, um, by the late 1890s, early 1900s, you begin to see, uh, more conservative Christian and Jewish women getting involved, founding their own organizations. And the, often the way this works is that, um, these small groups of activists are embedded in much larger potential constituencies, right? And as they begin to compete with each other to shape public policy or public opinion, they begin to go back to those constituencies to recruit more members. So the probably most striking example is that in 1899, conservative Protestant men actually uh, reach out to conservative Protestant women to persuade them to form their own organizations to complement the men's Protestant men's Christian um, morality movement, right? So they actually ge- uh, generate a women's counterpart to their men's organizations. Um, the interesting thing is that as more people are drawn in from these potential constituencies, you actually start to see a growing diversity of opinion within these um within these sort of now complexes of organizations. Because as you draw in more people, obviously you draw in more people with different perspectives and so forth. And again, the case of the Protestant men's um, and women's morality organizations is the most striking because the Protestant men's organizations were in favor of uh, abolishing the regulation of prostitution and criminalizing all prostitution. But it turned out that their female counterparts in the new – women's Protestant morality associations um, were actually uh, quite drawn to the position of radical women, which was that women should have the right to do whatever they want with their bodies and that the, um, the solution to the problem of regulated prostitution was actually to decriminalize all prostitution. <laughs> and so they actually um, uh, gained increasing influence within the men's Protestant morality associations and by 1912 – the men's Protestant morality associations had come around to that position that all prostitution should not be criminalized, but rather decriminalized and you should abolish regulation that way. Um, And this created huge ructions within the broader Protestant milieu, the uh, Protestant uh, church organizations and the Protestant charity organizations, because there you had men who were not um, influenced by women's organizations Uh, and who remained committed to the idea that prostitution is sinful and it should be against the law. Um, And you see that happening frequently, the homosexual rights movement splinters, uh, the sex reform movement splinters. Uh, There are very serious tensions within um, Catholic morality associations between men and women. Uh, Those are actually formed a little bit later after the turn of the century, but the same tension eventually develops between men's and women's organizations in that milieu as well. So the... What the book lays out is um, a dynamic of continuous escalation and fragmentation, that is to say, there are more and more organizations debating more and more issues in more and more uh, clear and vehement terms right um, ultimately out of that out of that dynamic, there develops a, a um, which is it c- centrifugal or centripetal centripetal tendency, because in order to get leverage on public policy, these organizations start to um, form alliances and and connections, and even um, interlocking directorates, and you start to see these three complexes of organizations and three views of the problem of sexuality emerging much more clearly by 1910, 1914 um, than they had at the beginning. Um, you, you've discussed a bit the, the Christian uh, perspective on right.
1: sexuality, sexual reform. Um, the other two camps that you've just started to introduce but that I haven't really named yet are, mm-hmm. the, are the sex reformers right. and the sexologists. Right, yeah. Um, and you make a distinction when looking at the Christian uh, and, and the confessional sex reform or the, let's say the morality organizations and these, these latter groups Right. Um, you, you sort of divide them uh, and you bring up the term anthropology just to divide mm-hmm. them. Okay? Mm-hmm. And you talk about a Christian anthropology and a monist anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so could you just describe what you mean by anthropology? Because that might not be apparent to all listeners, what you are right. there. And then, and then can you, can you summarize uh, what it is that makes these two anthropologies different?
0: Right. So, this returns us, in a sense, to Foucault because um, all of these groups share the conviction that sexuality is something um, extremely important, a determining factor in um, human subjectivity and in, in our sense of selfhood, right? Deeply rooted determining factor in our sense of selfhood. They agree on that. Um, they disagree as to the nature of that sexuality, and um sort of in sim- fairly simplistic terms the christian conception is that sexuality is an essentially animalistic force it's an amoral antisocial egoistic uh, appetite which has to be under the control of man's spiritual nature and moral values right the social democratic argument, which is central to sex reform, is that sexuality is uh, not only a creative force deeply rooted in man's nature, but also a fundamentally social force, that the bonds that hold society together are at their foundation essentially erotic, right? So sexuality for social democrats and sex reformers really is um, – the core of the glue that holds societies together and it's the source of the energy that makes people creative, whether it be in the arts or in politics or in the sciences or what have you. Um, for some sexologists, uh, sexuality is instead a fundamentally aggressive Instinct. Um, and the focus there is uh, very clearly on men's sexual aggression as the creative force that drives political and biological development and cultural development, right? Um, it's men's desire to essentially procreate with as many women as possible that drives them to create um, uh, arts and sciences and political. Uh, Um, institutions and so on and so forth. Uh, And whereas sex reform is very much focused on um, women's sexual subjectivity and the idea that women drive sexual selection, uh, some sexologists are very much focused on men's sexual aggression. And in fact, on death as the motor of evolution, not love for sex reform. It's women's capacity for love that really creates society and drives evolution forward. Uh, for some of the sexologists, it's re- they're really obsessed with war and specifically with racial war as the motor of evolution. Now, I say some sexologists because sexology is very diverse, very divided. And by 1913, you actually see two sexological associations emerge in Germany – one of which is actually very close to social democracy and sex reform and the other is um, much more conservative. Some of the people in it are uh, national liberals, that is, more conservative liberals. Some are um, uh, more connected to the Progressive People's Party that is sort of left liberalism but some are very attracted to radical right-wing politics, the idea of an authoritarian or even totalitarian state. Some of them are radical anti-Semites and and so forth.
1: The, The you know, you, you bring up, uh, and this is something that I think that we uh, uh, interest we both share. But you, you you know, you mentioned monism quite a, quite yep. a bit. Yep. Uh, and listeners who, who might have listened to some of my other interviews will notice that whenever that term appears, I pick up on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And um, you, you know, in your chapter, I mean, the one that of course interested me quite a bit was the one on um, the religion of sex. Right. Uh, Ellen K. This this Swedish mm-hmm. reformer, and uh, effectively, there's an argument there about. Um, a monist religion in which um, sex plays a key role in um, in mediating between body and spirit, yeah. and, and in in effect uh, fulfilling the, uh, kind of a monist anthropology. Uh,
0: could you go into that in a bit more detail? Yeah. So I um, actually describe both sexology and sex reform as fundamentally monist. In the case of um, particularly of sex reform but to some extent sexology as well, there are very close connections, organizational connections and uh, personal connections between the Monistenbund, the Monistist um, League and the sex reform organizations. Um, and Sex reformers describe themselves as monists and are um, uh, you know, describe themselves as disciples of Aztekel, the um, intellectual father and honorary chairman of the Monist Society, and the argument there is simply that there is not a realm of spirit uh, that is separate from the body, and that uh, Christianity has made a fundamental error in assuming that the body has to remain under the herschaft, the dominion. Of man's spiritual nature, if we are not to um, degenerate into an animalistic, chaotic state. Um, and this is why monists uh, argue that sexuality is actually a social and productive and creative force rather than an animalistic, amoral, antisocial, destructive force, right? Sexologists make the same argument. Um, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, some sexologists make the same argument and are very closely associated with um, with um, the sex reform movement. Other sexologists are drawn to the right-wing radical element within the monist movement as well, which is never a dominant element, which was there from the beginning. Heckel himself, for example, was um, kind of a vulgar racist in some texts at least. And, um, so they too can regard monism as kind of their, um, the overarching intellectual home that they inhabit. Um, and the difference, of course, is that, uh, ultimately, um, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish, uh, religious, um, organizations that are interested in matters of morality can actually come to a fundamental agreement, um, regarding the nature of sexuality and the political implications of that. Um, on the other side between this, the sexologists, particularly right-wing sexologists and the sex reform movement, there really is not an agreement. And in fact, there's intense hostility, um, because some of the right-wing, um, sexologists are, uh, very clearly social Darwinists and regard the, um, uh, much more, uh, I would say erotic conception of sexuality that prevails in the sex reform movement as um, fundamentally mistaken and wrong. Uh, and particularly the idea of a Pacific world is anathema to these people who argue that, you know, life is struggle and the weak have to be eliminated. And there's has to ultimately be um, a, a racial Armageddon in which the superior European peoples will, um, will conquer the inferior peoples of the world.
1: You, know, you make an interesting distinction, um, regarding the, the sexologists, or at least the more conservative, uh, sexologists and the sex reformers, uh, around issues of eugenics, um, mm-hmm. you know, where you, you, um, you bring up the, the point that the sex reformers were often more interested in more committed to eugenics and eugenic reform than the sexologists, yeah. which, you know, would strike one as, as a sort of uh, seemingly wrong because we, yeah. we might assume that we, you know, that these, uh, reactionary sexologists could link directly into national socialism. And we could see a kind of a trajectory of, of eugenic thought along right. the lines, which, which is probably there. But, uh, you know, your point there is, I think, about the um, the, the productivity of sex, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, you know, for the sex for the sex reformers, rather, um, you know, erotic love, as you were saying, is creative, is is, is positive, uh, um, and for the for many of these more conservative sexologists, as you're suggesting, the emphasis might be on not liberating women's eroticism and increasing their control over their bodies, but rather making sure that there's a maximum production of offspring for the coming struggle of the races. right? Um, So I I thought that was quite an interesting um, distinction. Do you want to say anything else about the, um, you know, why it was that these radical women were interested in eugenics? You know, for somebody who's not familiar with German history and the history of feminism, that would seem strange that the earliest most radical German feminists and the most radical homosexual rights reformers we're monists and we're committed to eugenics and very interested in race. How does that all come right. together?
0: So the, the I- I distinction that I found and that I've, I do find kind of counterintuitive is that um, the sex reformers who are very drawn to various forms of socialism, whether it be social democracy or more anarchistic varieties of socialism further to the left, um, they're very interested in eugenics And not so interested in race. You do find sort of, um, what we would see as racist comments, uh, or racist ideas scattered through their text, but really not in any great profusion. And they're primarily interested in eugenics, and they're extremely interested in eugenics, and they, they do, um, uh, you know, advocate the creation of what they call a eugenic religion, uh, in which the transcendence is not a spiritual aim but a physical aim. That is, we will create people who are superior to what we are now and are are superhuman in that sense, uh, both biologically and also in their social capacities. Um, Radical right-wing sexologists, like the sexologists in general, including sort of more conservative liberals and left liberals, are much less interested in eugenics, often quite skeptical of eugenics, but they're much more interested in race. Um, and, you know, thinking backward from National Socialism, we would think that the same people who are interested in eugenics should be interested in racism. Um, but before 1914, that's not actually the case. Uh, and I found that fascinating and, and, um, you know, I'm working on a second volume which will treat the 1920s and I'll sort that out, um, in, the, in the course of writing that. But, um, I think the, the, um, The sex reformers are interested in eugenics um, in part out of the heritage of their engagement with Nietzsche, who was very interested in um, the idea of selective breeding and of creating superior people, but in part also and increasingly because they were criticized for their Nietzschean individualism. Uh, and conservative Christians and, um, and of all stripes and also conservative Jewish figures argued that what they were arguing for was essentially sexual anarchy. And that their so-called ethic, well, they called it the new ethic as opposed to the Christian ethic, that this new ethic was not ethical at all, but was rather just an apology for an irresponsible pursuit of individual sexual pleasure. The appeal to eugenics was a way to argue that no, we actually do have um, a sense of responsibility, right? And we do not believe in free love, but rather in responsible individual love. But what we are responsible for is the health and well-being of our offspring in a biological sense, right? So, in a sense, um the growing engagement of sex reformers was in part a defensive response to criticisms of their more sort of Nietzschean ecstatic um, uh, understanding of the place of sexual love in, in the individual's life. Um, so there's a very complex evolution that happens there. Um, yeah, you don't you don't go into it very much, but I'm I'm curious
1: because I'm interested also in the you know in the 1960s and, and really what came after. But uh, you know, it strikes me that the, the question of sexual experience, the actual um, question of pleasure, of ex- of experience of sexuality, of um, you know relations of power within this within you know sexual encounters. Um, you don't really emphasize those discussions very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and my question, I guess, because, you know, if you think about what's happened since the 1960s and onwards, the, the, liber- the liberatory aspects of sex that have been, you know, in theoretical discussions, but also just in popular culture, have much more to do, I think, with the experience of sex rather than its relationship to procreation. Right. Whereas in, the, in this period, it seems that they're always talking at the same time about procreation. Uh, that they never dis- totally distinguish between um, experiences of sexuality and and social relations that are connected to sex, and in particular questions of motherhood, right? Uh, and 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 parent- parenting, but you know, obviously the the key group that you're looking at in terms of the sex reformers are the are the Bund uh, für Mutterschutz, uh, the Deutsche Bund für Mutterschutz, which is you know the protection of mothers. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, I just want to throw that open. Any any thoughts just about a comparison here, uh, the 1960s and thereafter versus the, the versus 1905?
0: Uh. Right. So I think there's a very complicated negotiation that's going on in this in the period that I examine. There's obviously um, a very very intense taboo against non-procreative sex, against uh, sex as an individual experience of pleasure that doesn't serve any social purpose. Uh, and The debates about the moral status of contraception are very intense and very highly charged, and particularly for women. There's a much broader social acceptance of men pursuing sexual experience as part of the process of becoming a man, growing up, uh, and that's far less accepted for women. However, within the sex reform movement, you do hear people arguing first that um, sex without procreation serves an important social function as the foundation – part of the foundation of love, right, which establishes stable um, social relationships between men and women and therefore is the foundation for the healthy environment in which children grow up. Um, and also for the tolerance of, uh, individual sexual preferences. So you see people arguing that, well, society, the state really doesn't have anything to say to someone who is by nature polygamous or who by nature, uh, is drawn to the idea of serial monogamy or who by nature, um, wants to have children, but is not terribly interested in being married. So you do hear people making that argument that um, sexual pleasure is the individual's business and not the business of other people who really can't know what the authentic sexual nature of another person is. You do hear that. Secondly, you do also hear voices within sex reform and even within sexology arguing that, Young women have just as much right and just as much need to explore sexuality through sexual experiences and sexual encounters as young men do. Now, this, even within the sex, the Bund für Mutterschutz, right, the major sex reform organization, is a very contentious statement. And, uh, you know, you hear in the in the protocols of these discussions, uh, you hear, you know, loud protests, followed so-and-so's remark that young women have the right to sexual experience just as much as young men. I think there's a continuous development uh, in the direction of accepting uh, sexual experimentation, sexual experience as having a useful social function between this period and the 1960s, right? And I think if you look back at the 1950s, early 60s, you will see people also arguing um, in terms more familiar from this period. That is, sexual exper- experimentation is valuable because it helps people to figure out what they like and what they want and therefore form stable marital relationships, which will be a healthy environment for children to grow up in. It's really in the later periods, um, late 60s into the 70s, 80s. That you see people arguing um much more commonly that sexual experimentation is valuable because it helps people to explore their own subjectivity without the goal of a stable social relationship i e procreative relationship um, being the ultimate aim, and again, you know people made that argument in nineteen hundred as well it was just a much more Highly charged uh, kind of statement in that period
1: I had another sort of related question jumping uh, jumping across the century in a way um, you know since the 1980s perhaps at the latest uh, many people in, in the west see sexuality as a, as, as a well let 's say gender as a as a construction um, mm-hmm. as a cultural construction with a, with a specific historicity and, mm-hmm. and that um, Conviction, or, or that theory emerged in part also in, in a response to sociobiology, right? That there is right. no, the notion that uh, biology fixes um, gender and it fixes sexual identity was rejected, uh, right. in the in at that period in the early eighties by by a particularly feminists, and mm-hmm. uh, you know it may be that that's now changing uh, in an age that we live in today with uh, evolutionary psychology and uh, right. and so on, uh, but nonetheless. Uh, uh, just to, to compare now, going back again to, to the, uh, that period, 1905, or say, to what degree did the sex reformers or sexologists uh, view gender as constructed, um, and to what degree did they think that it was biologically fixed?:
0: Right. The idea that gender was biologically fixed is virtually universal. Um, in this period. I, I can't think of people actually, uh, who argue in any coherent way that there is not an essential femininity and an essential masculinity. What you do see is people arguing that, um, sexuality is not necessarily fixed. That is to say, um, well, this opens a whole can of worms because you do see in this period um, precisely the argument that Foucault points out, which is that sexuality is an essential element and a determining element in subjectivity, and that sexuality is differentiated. That is to say, there are people who are by nature monogamous, people who are by nature there are people who are by nature uh, heterosexual, people who are by nature homosexual. If they're attracted to both sexes, then they're by nature bisexual. If they like pain, they're by nature sadistic. If they like inflicting pain – sorry – you understand what I'm saying, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that sadism or masochism or sadomasochism are essential and irreducible elements in a person's sexuality. There are people who um, argue that this is really not the case and that sexuality is much more protean. Um, and when you look at what information we have about people's sexual practices, that is not what they thought about sex what intellectuals and kind of the social elite thought about sex, but what people actually did in practice, you see uh, a much more indeterminate understanding of sexuality. There's many people get pleasure from many different kinds of sex acts. Um, early survey research, for example, discovers that the number of people who consider themselves bisexual is much bigger than anyone thought that the number of people who have what we would call homosexual experiences in their youth is far bigger than anyone thought possible on the basis of the assumption that sexuality is fixed and differentiated. Um, and uh, that people just either experimented because they were interested or engaged in various different forms of sexual um, activity as opportunity and Um, and circumstances dictated so you do see uh, a kind of a disconnect between the theory of sexuality as most people understood it and as Foucault reconstructed it and actual sexual practice Um, there was much greater certainty about gender than there was about sexuality. The assumption that there is an essential femininity and an essential masculinity was almost universal. There um, were voices, particularly in the women's movement, who questioned that. In fact, um, could you actually
1: say something? Sorry, just yeah. about this because it's such an interesting figure. Uh, well, you haven't you, you haven't actually mentioned individuals much yet, but we have mm-hmm. Helena Stucker and Magnus Hirschfeld, who I think mm-hmm. uh, are both in the Monist League. They're 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 really the leaders of you know the sex reform on the one hand yes. and the homosexual rights movement on the other. Yes. Um, you know they do have a have a slightly different view, don't they, on the notion of um, of gender. Um, Do you want to say something about
0: that? Yeah, well, what's most apparent in their, uh, in their publications is this notion that, um, there is an unlimited, there are an unlimited number of sexual variations. And that, uh, sexuality is differentiated, but along a continuous spectrum. Right. And Hirschfeld, for example, at one point calculates that there are 43,076,421 different discrete forms of sexual desire. Right. And he remarks at one point, I think um, there are as many forms as love uh, as there are individuals. Um, so that's a that's quite a different understanding of sexuality than an understanding that tries to catalog the discrete specific forms of sexuality. Right sadomasochistic or sadist or heterosexual or homosexual or et cetera et cetera. Um, and they also argue that uh, masculinity and femininity are combined in every individual in varying uh, quantities right so that you can never say that one individual is either solely masculine or solely feminine they may be predominantly masculine, but also partly feminine. The two genders, so to speak, may be in balance, or principles may be in balance in an individual, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a fundamentally different conception of gender than a conception that says there's masculinity and there's femininity, and any individual belongs either to the one or the other category, right? Um, but nevertheless, there is the there is the I think they're still negotiating the concept that these two things are discrete and fundamentally, essentially different. Right? It's just that they're present in varying degree in every individual. I don't know. You may have a different understanding of, of how they're thinking of it.
1: No, I think that that's, I think that's right. I mean, the interesting thing with, uh, with Hirschfeld is he talks about a monism of the sexes. Mm -hmm. that, That in a sense, every, Every individual represents a different amalgamation of these two principles. So instead of it being body and spirit, it's male and female. Uh, he yeah. kind of appropriates this this kind of uh, thought pattern um, for his yeah. own purposes. Uh, but I, but I think that is again quite interesting. It's just a, again for listeners who don't are familiar with this history, um, the notion that the homosexual rights movement and the radical feminist movement were deeply indebted to biology, mm-hmm. uh, evolutionary biology, it may be surprising to many listeners. Um, But, you know, if you do work in this period, it's it's very obviously the case.
0: Yeah, Um, and it's such an extraordinary contrast to the sociobiology of the 80s and 90s, right? Which argues that, um, uh, you know, I see that as an anti-feminist argument, that women are women and men are men, and and they have to perform different roles for evolutionary reasons. Um, You know, one other thing I wanted to mention is uh, there is this fascinating character who appears in the book, Johanna um, Elboskirchen, who's one of the few openly homosexual women in Germany and in the sex reform movement at the, at the period, she's someone who actually does. I think it's she who says at one point that, um, trying to force people to decide whether they're going to live out, uh, their social lives, either as masculine or feminine, fem- feminine is essentially terroristic, right? That this is a- an assault on the fundamental principle of, uh, individual autonomy. Uh, so there certainly is that kind of argument, um, um, which absolutely rejects the idea that we have to be either the one or the other.
1: Well, that that is seems so unusual for the time period because it is. Uh, you know, as as again as a contrast, perhaps to the to the late twentieth century, um, at this period it seems that you, if you're going to talk about sex, you have to root it in a foundational biological, well, maybe not biological, but you have to relate it into a foundational discourse in which everyone is allocated a position in the moral mm. system and mm-hmm. no one is to escape that. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're so deeply committed. Each, each camp is so deeply committed to its, uh, particular program, um, uh, that the idea right. of, of a, a full sexual liberation is, is to all of them effectively yeah. would destroy yeah. all of their systems. Yeah. Um, this actually segues then maybe to my last, uh, one of my last questions, the, uh, in your title, sex, freedom, and power. Okay. Power. I think we've, we've hit on, but freedom, mm-hmm. we haven't really talked about that. Uh, how do these each of these three camps define freedom as
0: mm-hmm. it
1: relates to sexuality? Mm-hmm.
0: So, two things. One is the way that they um, define f- the freedom uh, of the individual, and the other is the way that they define freedom as a political, in, in, in a constitutional sense, right? And the two are obviously closely related. Uh, the Conservative religious morality campaigners, whether Catholic or Protestant or Jewish, uh, argue that people are always in danger of falling uh, under the power of sexuality and losing their ability to make autonomous decisions on the basis of human values, right? So sexuality is not only an antisocial force, an egoistic force, but it's also a danger to the individual's spiritual freedom and their ability to make decisions uh, that construct a meaningful and productive and satisfying social life for them themselves, right? They therefore argue that the authoritative institutions of their society, whether The church authorities or the political authorities or social authorities, including class privilege and so forth, privileged social groups, that they are there in order to preserve our moral freedom, the moral freedom of the individual by assuring that people have to behave according to moral or ethical standards, Right. That defends the internal freedom of the individual from their own animalistic sexuality, as well as defending society and particularly the weak in society from the aggressive sexual drives of other individuals. Right. So the function of authority in society is to preserve freedom. There can't be freedom without authority. All there would be is anarchy in which the strong would impose their will on the weak. And ultimately they argue that the outcome of that would be dictatorship because people would flee to the protection of the strongest um, um, against the the danger of anarchy. Uh, The sex reformers argue instead that, um, again, sexuality is a creative social force and that political freedom has to be – rooted in, founded on the uh, moral autonomy of the individual, including their sexual autonomy and sexual matters, right? And a society and a state that can tell people how they are allowed to behave in their intimate private lives cannot be a politically democratic society, right? So sexual rights correspond to, necessarily correspond to, and underpin political rights. They also argue, obviously, that um, uh, sexual freedom serves an evolutionary purpose. We are attracted to sexual partners because it is the will of nature that we procreate with those sexual partners in order to produce more balanced or better offspring, Right? So sexuality is a creative energy that must be allowed to flow freely through society if we are to continue to evolve biologically and also in our social capacities, culturally. Right? For some of these radical right-wing sexologists, um, sexual freedom really means the freedom of men to pursue sexual relationships with as many women as possible. And again, the purpose there is to um, drive Evolutionary advance through the ability of better, stronger, more socially successful men to attract or to conquer more women, procreate with them, and therefore produce um, uh, superior offspring. And, you know, we often think of the radical right as socially conservative. They really weren't, they opposed social privilege. Uh, Because they wanted a meritocracy of biology. They want uh, inferior members of the upper class, of the aristocracy or the bourgeoisie or whatever, to fail and not to procreate. And they want superior members of the – it's very hard for them to imagine members of the proletariat being biologically (laughs) superior. But in principle, yes, you would want those people also to have lots of children by lots of women. Um, And they also absolutely reject – uh, christianity uh, among other things many of them reject the idea of monogamy not all but many of them reject the idea of mo- monogamy and argue that an, the natural state is a state of polygamy in which again superior men uh procreate with uh, more women uh so for them uh sexual freedom is really the freedom of men to pursue their sexual drives yeah um, the, uh, the
1: this this uh The attention that you give really to the struggle between male and female activists Mm -hmm. in all of these camps Mm -hmm. is is quite fascinating. And I found that very useful to actually see that there was this, uh, you know, struggle based on just simply on different interests um, uh, that that cropped up in in, in all of the camps.
0: Yeah, the book closes with a brief discussion of that. It certainly is one of the most striking things about the period is just this uh, astonishing hostility. Pervasive hostility between men and women, all across the ideological spectrum. It's um, a, a bit demoralizing, really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I had, a, I had a, a sort of final point, and maybe I'll provoke you just a little bit. We'll see. Yep. We'll see if you get provoked. Um, you know, at the, at the outset, in your in your introduction, you say that you're arguing against these teleological arguments right. that are in some discussions about uh, you know the role of biology and. In, in Modern history, and in the, eventually in the in the development the of national, science. in National Socialism. I mean, yep. there's a you know, I actually heard your name uh, very favorably mentioned recently by Mark Roseman at a at a at a conference where he was talking about a book that I think he's putting together on a um, maybe you're involved in this on challenging the notion that that uh, the Nazi state was a racial state. Uh, so sort of. Oh, this, right. I uh, was at
0: that conference yeah i 'm not involved in the in the volume, but I was at that conference
1: okay but the, this notion that uh, you know again an effort to argue against a, a unilinear or, or a, a single explanation of a of a dynamic within a system right? mm-hmm. um, and and so this is the sort of point you 're making at the beginning. Um, and then with your notion of the field, uh, you'd, in the end, I think, describe it as if one imagines a, a, a ballroom or, or a bar room, rather, right. where a, a brawl breaks out at one table and then sort of spreads and spreads across the room. Right. And, uh, and I thought that was a very telling uh, uh, motif. But I'm wondering if there's not a teleology in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I th- it seems that your argument in, in the sort of, you know, the big narrative of the book, is that we're we're looking at a field of actors who in a sense, you know, exist in in this larger society of Germany in the pre-1914 period. And and in a sense this field is becoming saturated. Mm-hmm. So more and more actors, right, the, the brawl is yep. spreading. And the and the agonistic quality is increasing. Yes. And there's a dynamic there of of uh, radicalization and and conflict yes. that is describing the system. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm wondering to what degree you're really relying on it on – you're borrowing another argument but not really stating it really clearly, which is an argument about imperialism mm-hmm. in this period. And, you know, m- many people – and I suppose even Christopher Clark. not that I've read his book, but anyway, his title, The Sleepwalkers, you know, how, right. how the European states came into the First World War as a kind of, you know, almost an, uh, you know, a, a system function – of, yes. of 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 imperialism, the period of imperialism where we see a, a global saturation of of imp- by imperial states of, of all the territory of the world or most of it, um, yes. increasing uh, manufacturing capacity, increasing armaments, and so on. There's these multiple levels of of saturation, and many yes. have made that same argument about German society and yes. said that um, you know I think probably Vela, right, social imperialism that there's a type of Internal imperialism going on within Germany that that mirrors the the global imperialism and that um, effectively uh, the great relief that people felt in nineteen fourteen in August had to do with the resolution of these various um, imperial saturations and, and antagonisms yes um, and that you know in a sense world war 1 solved that problem of course it didn't really solve it but it, right. it's an endpoint of all those things and uh, and i'm just wondering to what degree you know instead of saying 1914 is a is a disruption which i mm-hmm. think you say at some point it's kind of shatters this this whole system right uh, whether or not you're maybe connecting your narrative into that narrative that 1914 is in fact the end result of this right Development and uh, is that, is that a provocation or not? Would you agree with that or or? Uh, I, I think it's saying?
0: a great observation and 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 a very fruitful observation. Um, I guess I'd have multiple responses. I'll try to run through three of them quickly. One is that um, the outbreak of war in 1914 is, I don't think, in any direct way, a product of the debate about sexuality. Um, Secondly, uh, however, the subject of imperialism and empire, of course, is central to the debate about sexuality in various ways. uh, Conservative Christians are very skeptical and critical of imperial expansion, including by Germany. Uh, The sex reformers, uh, most of them are also extremely skeptical of imperialism. Uh, and of war uh, many of the sexologists particularly on the on the radical right um, are much more sympathetic to the idea um, but it, you know I think this whole discussion of sexuality and power probably plays into the cultural milieu out of which the acceptance of uh, war grows so it's not a causative element but it's um, um, a, a um Part of that broader uh, cultural pattern that leads to war. Um, The third thing is that what I find most valuable about Niklas Luhmann and and the theory of complex systems is that not only do they allow us to describe a dynamic that is determined by the interactions between elements in a system rather than by the nature of those elements – But they also allow us to understand a system as labile, as unstable, right? Because we don't assume that outcomes are determined by the hegemonic or dominant influence of one element interacting in that system, I think we're better able to understand that a system can flip state. I'm using the jargon of the theory of complex systems here, but in other words, The dynamic that I'm describing establishes multiple potentials and relatively uh, minor internal changes can radically shift outcomes, politically in particular, but also external forces influencing the system can radically alter um, the balance of those forces within that of those elements within that system. And this is, I think a way that we can begin to get to grips with the fact that modern Germany was within the space of half a century, a conservative authoritarian constitutional monarchy, and then a democratic federal Republic, and then a totalitarian dictatorship, and then a relatively liberal, uh, um, federal republic again right now of course the influence of the wars is a partially external intervention that determines those outcomes right but each of those political systems is built on potentials that actually are there in german society you can't impose those systems from outside uh, without having some foundation to build on within german society and the 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 way in which I'm trying to conceive of this as a field of contention rather than as a coherent discourse that has uh, an inevitable logic, I think helps us to get to grips with that instability, that lability of the system. And again, uh, you know, uh, I think neither Foucault and certainly not Poikard argued that there was only one outcome that could arise out of the internal logic of this discourse – But they actually didn't analyze multiple outcomes. They only analyzed the fascist outcome. And I'm trying to develop a way of understanding this debate uh, that allows us to understand how this field of contention could contribute to the creation of radically different political regimes. Very good. I hope that makes sense.
1: Tell me if that makes sense. It makes sense (laughs) to me. It does make sense to me. Um, Well, listen, I've I've taken enough of your time. Um, You know, you've mentioned that you're going to write a sequel
0: to this. Yes.
1: uh, Looking at the Weimar Republic. Uh, And um, are you going to continue after 33 or are you going to stop at 33?
0: I think probably I have to stop. Um, I mean, I've written a little bit about the policing of sexuality in the Federal Republic. uh, But I don't want to spend my entire career writing about the history of sexuality and debates about the history of sexuality in Germany alone. The, the most recent book that I'm working on is, um, is about modern dance in Europe as a whole. It's related, but, um, but not confined to Germany and not confined to sexuality. I've finished a manuscript in World History. Um, I've been working on this for probably 15 years. It's going to be time to move on when I'm done with the second volume.
1: <laughs> Very good. Okay, well, that's a great final note. Um, I've been speaking to Edward Ross Dickinson about his uh, wonderful new book from Cambridge University Press Sex, Freedom, and Power in Imperial Germany, 1880 to 1914. And Ed, I just want to thank you for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, when you finish your book on, on the, the history of dance, uh, perhaps we can have another
0: uh, chance uh, to. That would be marvelous. I look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you.